Hi, I'm Ernie Boxall, and I am the storyteller. And with No Story Stagnates, I'm helping business owners and interesting people tell their story before somebody else tells it for them so that they can make the maximum impact on more people without anxiety or dread. And welcome to No Story Stagnates with me, Ernie Boxall. And it's my honour today to be have as a guest, Mitali Daper-Casco. You almost got it. Almost. <laughs> what I'm going Daper-Casa. to Daper-Casa. I'll ask yes. Mitali to tell us who she is, where she is, and what she's doing now. So over to you, Mitali. Thank you, Ernie. Thank you for having me. So um, I'm Mitali Daper-Casa. I am a book coach and book publisher. A business book coach. So I help people write books, but specifically business, non-fiction, business how-to books. Yes. And that's what I do. That's what I've been doing for about eight or nine months now. I was previously a ghostwriter and a copywriter, and I've moved into yes. helping people write their own books. And that's an interesting segue in, Mitali, because I was going to say we've known each other for over a year now. Yes, around about, yeah. yeah. And I remember you saying that you were going to write a book right at the start of when we first, and, and look at where you are now. I know, I know. It's been a whirlwind. This last year has been crazy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so really looking forward to this, and I'm sure my audience will be, because you do have a hell of a business journey. Yes, but what we're looking for today is the life journey. Not so, a problem. Mitali, if you could tell us the one answer to the question I ask all my guests, do you know how your mother and father met? I do. Uh, yes, I definitely do, because it was an arranged marriage. So it wasn't just me. <laughs> the whole clan knew about it, of course. <laughs> so, yes, my dad. It's, there's an interesting story there, though. My dad had decided not to marry originally. He had very, very bad asthma. And uh -huh. this was back in the days when, so this will be the 1950s, 1960s. Yes. And asthma at the time it was much more debilitating than it is now. I yes. mean, the drugs, the inhalers are a lot better now. So he was so bad that he felt, I'm quite proud of him actually, because he came from a culture where men expect to get married regardless of their condition. And if yes. they're unwell, they expect to get married for the woman to be a nursemaid to him, essentially. He actually was quite forward thinking and he didn't want that in a wife. He thought that would be he'd be taking a young woman's life and not giving a being the best husband that he could be. So he decided a long time ago that he wasn't going to get married. And then in his forties, the asthma started to improve with different medications that he was on. And he decided well into his forties that he would like to marry. Uh, and then he heard about this family based in London. He met my um, older aunt. It's my mother's older sister. And she was the one who arranged the marriage. She said, I've got a wonderful younger sister. She lives in India at the moment. Yeah. Come over to India. You can meet her. If you like her, let's let's do this. And that's how it happened. Wow, beautiful. And, and this isn't part of what we were going to do. But the first question that came up was, is, was there something in your father's background that made him step away from norm, the norm? The normal culture was that would that sum up who your father was or is i believe so it's it's very difficult to say any let me tell you something about what happened in india so my dad lived through the partition of india yeah um and my mother lived through the formation of bangladesh the next big crisis in that region of the world yes so they lived through two very different but equally harrowing parts of history in that Indian subcontinent. And um, 
I don't think this is a very Indian thing. I think this is a very human thing. We tend to minimize horrors. We tend to not want to talk about them or give them voice. And I always found it interesting that my mother called uh, the formation of Bangladesh. She used to, she would use a word to describe it called gondagul. Now gondagul means in Bengali, it just means a bit of a faff, a bit of a do. Yeah. So when she would tell me about Gondagals, and my dad would also use the word to explain the partition of India, in my head growing up, I genuinely thought it was just Hindus on one side, Muslims on one side, on the yeah. other side, just having a bit of a do, just really yeah. not liking each other, crosswords were exchanged, yeah. land was divided, there you go. As a child, I had no understanding, no concept of what real war was. Yes. I think my first understanding of what war could be and the horrors of war was as a teenager, I remember the, um, the breakup of Yugoslavia. Uh -huh. And then you had, do you remember that Ernie? And then yes. Bosnia was invaded by Serbia. and. And I was at the time I was about 13 years old and I was old enough now. And I remember just being horrified and understanding this is what war is. Yeah. And then suddenly seeing what my parents went through, my, my dad with the partition of India and my mother with the formation of Bangladesh, they never spoke about it. So it's very difficult for me to answer your question. Right. But I think it's because they never I mean, my dad went to his grave, never really discussing or telling me not no. wanting to tell me about some of the things that he saw yeah. but I do know he was orphaned from a very young age uh -huh. and I know his older sister much older sister uh, brought him up yes uh, educated him managed to get him over to England to give him a better life and then she died quite early on as well so he was left with nobody after that so right. I, I suspect it would have changed his view yes he would have seen the hardship that his sister went through looking after him yes and i suspect he didn't yeah. want to be a burden on another woman which is why he made that decision when he had this really bad asthma that he didn't want to get married mm -hmm. but i'm making assumptions i have to be honest with you, i'm making assumptions of course i don't actually know and my mother's still alive and still doesn't tell me anything yeah. about all the horrors that you saw when Bangladesh yeah. was formed they come from a culture and I would say um a generation that just did the yeah. whole stiff upper lip thing you Absolutely. don't talk about stuff like that so no. they never did no wonderful thank you for being so open on that really really decisive so if we can go from the years one to ten okay. a story Mitali that still makes an impression maybe on you Oh, gosh, so there's so many. Yeah. Um, well, I'll, I'll let you choose, Ernie. I'll let you choose. I've got two, and you right. can tell you can choose which one you want to hear. So one is, I'd say, quite a fundamental story as to why I do what I do now. Yes. However, I'm going to be honest with you. I don't remember it. I only remember my mother telling me about this. Right. And then the other story I have is a recurring dream that I had. And I kept having it till I was eight or nine years old, from the age okay. of about three or four. So you take your pick. Which one would you like to hear? Take the second one, the dream. The dream. Okay. So the very first time I had this dream, I think I was three or four. Um, and I dreamt that my brother was not really my brother. He was an imposter. My real brother had been kidnapped somehow. And this clone of a brother had been implanted into my home and you know when you have those we will have these even as adults we'll have these dreams where you feel like your voice gets stuck in your throat you yes. can't and it's one of those frustrating nightmares where you just can't whatever you want to do whatever you want to That's say you, you can't, can't do you just go yeah. and you're like and you wake up like this as well yes. you know? it was one of those dreams where i'm screaming and shouting at all, my family my, my parents my yeah. my sister and saying no this is not on upon this is not my brother right. i'm telling you this is a clone of my brother some evil forces put a clone of my brother <laughs> into and I would wake up at the point where I would be trying to stuff my clone brother into the dustbin. Right. Hoping that I can get rid of him that way and the family will throw the bin out without checking what's in the bin. 
Now, it sounds quite funny now as an adult, but this is actually a nightmare. I would wake up screaming. I'd wake up crying. Um, I'd want to go and see my brother to make sure that it was my right, the correct brothers. But when I woke up, I'd realize, I don't know in the dream why I thought this brother wasn't the real brother. Um, But it's something I still don't really know why I dreamt that. And it was a recurring dream until I was about eight or nine years old. Right. Interesting. And and I do understand. I have them myself where y- you you literally, you try, although you were asleep, you were trying to get out or, or, or to sit and you couldn't. And yeah, I've been it there. Really, so it was horrible. Absolutely. What do you think you got from that? Was there any, would you say there's a lesson? Uh, I I think the lesson is from a very early age, I began to distrust distrust what I see. People always say, you know, um, I don't know, I just started to, I had various other dreams when I was growing up, which all seemed to be about things to do with human beings tampering with nature. Right. So it's interesting. I, I've always, from a very early age, I was dreaming things about clones. I was dreaming things about genetic engineering right. and the horrors. I remember one very vivid dream where I was on the Tyne Bridge. I, I, I live in Gateshead, so you've got yes. the Tyne Bridge that connects Gateshead to yes. Newcastle. It's a very, very famous bridge, and I'm, I'm stood on it. And there's no one there. It's very early in the morning. It's just me. And then I can see a boat with two fishermen. Uh-huh. on the time and they're they're just fishing and then i can see seagulls in the sky which is very normal in newcastle we're very Absolutely. very close to very close yeah. to the coast yeah um but again i start screaming i want to scream at these fishermen to tell them something i don't know what but i'm scared of their for their lives but they can't hear me you know when you can't make you can't scream in your yeah. dream it just sticks in your throat and these seagulls getting closer and closer and they're just seagulls. I'm not really sure what I'm terrified about. And then it's only when they're very close to, I realize they are a hybrid of sharks and seagulls. Ah, so it's ah. a shark seagull. And they, and I watch them swoop down on the fishermen and eat them alive. I think I was only about five when I saw that. Charlie, <laughs> are you sure I'm, you want to stick to how-to books? I, I, I think you've, I need got, to... you've got the writer's <laughs> mind. <laughs> I should write. Well, my my thing, Ernie. If if ever I've got an hour spare or you know an evening, I do watch a lot of science fiction and things yes. like that. But it's interesting that I was dreaming those things before yeah, I started absolutely. watching science fiction films. So I wonder absolutely. where was I getting this? Where was it coming from? Where yeah. where's the input there? It would almost make sense if I was. If my parents, for example, were watching a lot of sci-fi when I was very young and don't remember, yeah. then it would make sense as some of those images may have been going into sure. my brain. But my but, parents assure me they never watched anything like that no, when I was no. very, very young. So I'm no. not really sure where these ideas were coming from. Part but, of you, um, Charlie, yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's, um, so it's if we can jump from 11 to 20, your teenage years, perhaps one or even two stories, because it... To me, that's a vital period of time. Yes. Where yes. it can really shape how you're going to be. So one or two stories and the lessons. Okay. Um, I would say in my early teens, I was very unhappy, really, really unhappy. Um, I wasn't, I know this is no reason, but I wasn't, Uh, It's horrible to say this, but you know how sometimes you look at some children and you wonder what I don't understand why this child, I mean, no child should be bullied. No. But with some children, you can understand it. They're so they're, they're overweight, or they yes. just they look a bit odd. Or and like I said, that I, I I never ever want to say that any child should, or any no. adult really should be bullied. But there's and there's other kids you look at and you go, I don't get it. That kid looks as normal as the yep. next kid. Why are they? I was the kid that you looked at and thought, yeah, I can see why she's bullied. I was wow. very very overweight. I had really really bad acne. Yes. And like I said, those are not reasons to be bullied ever. No, well, no. you kind of look to me, and you can, you know, you can understand. So yeah, it, I, I was, I was alone. I didn't really have any friends going up, and I kind of retreated into my writing and uh-huh. telling stories and that kind of thing. Um, but the lesson really is that you know, 
if you don't fit in, don't keep trying to fit in, just find something that you're good right. at. But because yeah. because of that, and because I retreated into my writing and my reading yes. and into my own thoughts, I ended up winning a scholarship to go to a, a summer school in Edinburgh for a month. Right. And with me, there was five other children, and we actually co-wrote an episode of Brookside. Yes. Which was the first thing that I did that I really saw up in light. And that gave me the impetus to say, right. up until that point, writing and reading was just something I did for fun. Yeah. I was actually set for uh, a career in medicine. I know I, right. I, I'm a walk. I'm a walking, talking stereotype. Any educated Indian woman, of course, she's going to be a doctor. Yeah. So I was going to go down that path. And it was only after that time in that summer school and then seeing that episode of Brookside go, yes. oh, my God, I had a part to play in writing Brilliant. this episode. That's what made me think, yeah, I, I want to do something within writing. Yeah. That's and that, what I want that to brings do up writing. a question again from, from those two stories, from from sort of up to 8, 10, and then 13, 14, 15. What were you like at school? Or how did you like school? Did you, did you hate school? I loved school from an academic point of view. I really enjoyed the learning process. I'm one of these people that if somebody would pay me just to learn yeah. for the rest of my life, <laughs> I would do that. <laughs> I'd be that annoying person that has all the, well, I was just about to say all the letters after my name, but I've already got so many letters after right. my name. Yeah. But I would still happy to have even more letters after my name. <laughs> I would happily just learn for the sake of learning because I really have a voracious appetite yes. to learn. But unfortunately, this is how it should be. The world should be. You should actually contribute to society just learning and not contributing no. something. No. It makes sense. I mean, really, no. I'm being very selfish to expect the oh. world to keep paying yeah. for me to just keep learning I do have to contribute but that would be my ideal so I loved it I love school yes. probably, but I didn't enjoy it because I felt alone I, no. I was I would say mildly bullied yeah. I was lucky and then my dad put me into a private school when I was 11 right it was a very small school so they really looked after me and made sure things didn't get out of hand yes. I'm sure the bullying would have been a ton worse if I was in a big comprehensive yeah big state school back then i don't know if you remember ernie back then it was normal to have classes where there were 50 plus wow, students there's absolutely. absolutely no way for a, a teacher to keep an eye on that no. many kids you know no. so um i'm sure things would have been a lot worse for me if i wasn't in a private was school that, where... would that have been in the 80s or 70s or 80s this is this is 80 so I was in yeah. a state primary school till yeah. 89 and then from 1989 I was in a private oh. school so I, as a teenager I was in a private if school. If I can contribute a little bit there Mitali because during the 80s I was taken on as a supply teacher. Oh, okay. I, I'd had no teacher training but when I was at college I'd had a group of six formers. I was doing a graduation course for sports therapy. And a group of six formers came from the local comprehensive school. And they were with me for six weeks, once a week, to try and get them to learn the basics of putting on a sports class. Oh, okay. And then at the end of it, they told me that their sports teacher had just been suspended for smacking a pupil. So really? they recommended, the school asked me if I'd go and just finish off the term as a supply teacher. And I, I, they said, at the end of it, they said, look, we want to keep you on because you seem to be able to get work, some work, out of the lower streams. Whereas teachers, as soon as a teacher comes in, the lower streams kick off. Yeah. And so I did about seven or eight years as a supply teacher with no teacher training. Wow. And when I started, it was brilliant. I'd come home to my partner and say, it's been great. You know, there's one or two kids who were a bit unruly. When I finished in the, in the 1990s, I'd come home and say, there's two kids who were doing really well, but the rest of the class, it's a jungle. Wow. And that, that's how it had changed in nine years. And as the classes got bigger, the bigger the jungle got. Yeah. The um, it was a was. Klaus's, 
I really felt it was crisis point sort of around yeah. late eighties, early. I think from what I can tell, it's a lot better now. Right. Um, but yeah, it was it was terrible. Yeah. So I think my dad saw that and he wanted yeah. me moved into a private school. Yeah. Where the classes were a lot smaller. So is there is there a story of maybe later teens, 18, 19, 20? Oh God, so th there's huge stories there. So that that was the time when things kind of fell apart for me. So I left school um, with great A-levels. I got into Manchester University to study a media right. studies degree. And I think, well, it's because of the, it's not my parents' fault, but they did wrap me up in cotton wool, yeah. which is understandable. I'm, I'm the first. So your parents kind of be, they're usually the most strict with the first child. Yeah. Um, but also you have to remember, even if they weren't strict, what was I going to do? I didn't have any friends. I was a loner. So right. it wasn't like I could go off and go off the rails anyway. And then when I went to Manchester, I did just go off the rails spectacularly. Yes. So within a few months of me being at Manchester University, I ended up with an addiction with two amphetamines and ecstasy. Right. So I was just partying all the time and not going to classes, which meant that I lost my place. I yeah. lost my accommodation as well because I was linked to my of university. Course. And I ended up in a homeless shelter for about a year. So, yeah, that was a real turning point for me. It really, really changed how I see life. And, you know, especially someone who'd gone from yeah. quite a, you know, a good, yeah. I would say we come from working class background yes. but we kind of pulled ourselves up to middle class level yes certainly with me at, at private school I don't think you can call me working class or I'm going to a private school <laughs> um and this this belief back then and still pervades now that people like me that sort of thing shouldn't yeah. happen to right and yet it does it can happen to anybody Absolutely. you know and I, I would venture that your experiences then you may even have, they may even have even contributed to maybe later in life. It's completely changed. It's completely resilient. changed how I feel. Yeah, it's made me resilient. And also, I think, compassionate. Right. I think a lot of people, I, I might annoy a few people here, but a lot of pay, people pay lip service when it comes to being compassionate about homelessness, compassionate about addiction, that kind of thing. Um it, it really is lip service. A lot of people really don't. And I'll, I'll have to count myself as one of those people yep. until I was in that situation. Right. And I saw how people get, it, it's almost like, I almost think of it as you come into the system and the system itself is so flawed that things can get worse for you within that system. I was lucky because I managed to get assigned a really good team of coaches and therapists and mentors. I, I think mainly... A, because I was female, so women are usually given better treatment if they're homeless than men are. Right. Um, and secondly, it was actually um, my, my ethnicity. I think yeah. almost there was an element of they, need, they felt they needed to help me because it was so unusual sure. to have an Indian girl yes. who was homeless. In fact, yeah. I, I don't think I met any other Indian girl that was no. homeless, you know. So... No. Um, I think for that reason, it was sort of, sort of like the inverse of racism. If that, if that right. was, it counted, it counted for me for once. My race yeah. counted for me. Yeah. Um, but that made me, um, it, it upset me as well, because I, I met these amazing women and men who are on the streets for no fault of their own. You know, they're yeah. just the perfect storm. Yeah. A lot of people think they're years and years away from homelessness. The average person in the UK, I found out recently from shelter, the average person in the UK is about four to six months yeah. away from homelessness. Yeah. All they literally need is to be made redundant and they don't get another job. And, you yeah. know, and most people only have savings to last about four to six months. That's right. So if you don't sort yourself out, you could easily be on the street in less than a year. Yeah. So you know, it, it, it really informed me and I grew up, you know, that was a really formative yes. experience. And I grew up having so much more compassion for people on the streets, right. compassion for working girls. A lot of the girls who were in the shelter with me yeah. were selling themselves to yeah. pay for a habit and that kind of thing. And just having so much more compassion for, for uh -huh. these people instead of just seeing them as just these people who are down right. and out. Did that, I take it that, did that take you into your 20s, Vitaly? Or, and, and is there a story between 20 and 30? 
Um, between 20 and 30 was, well, I actually had a really, really good time. So I got myself clean. Mm. I got back into university, got ah. first, ended up doing a master's at London School of Journalism, did really well on that. And for the first few years of my 20s, I was working as a freelance journalist for a number of Aye. different papers and, and magazines in the northeast of England. So that was a really, really happy point in my life. Um, but then, you know, a happy, happy point to life, they never last. So, so I ended up, this is now, this will take me into 2001, 2002. Yes. So if you cast your mind back then, Ernie, that was the time when there was this, this thing called new media. We now call it the internet. Right. It's called new media back then. And there was huge panic in the print world that, you know, uh-huh. no one will want to read newspapers and magazines anymore. So lots of journalists lost their job. Yes. Um, something I'm still up you know bitter about even to this day because there's now all this talk about fake news and yeah. you know, people get their news from Facebook and it's like well who's verifying that you know anybody can stick something on Facebook Absolutely. and if a lot of people say oh it's fake news but I, I can't speak for other countries but certainly in this country I believe you can trace it back to 2001-2002 and what editors up and down the country did they made a huge mistake Instead of realizing that all that was happening was that people were changing the medium that they're consuming news, but they still want news. Yes. They still want entertainment. They still want to know where to go to eat, what's happening in other countries, what to wear. They still want all that information but they're just consuming it in a different format. That's all it was. And because editors were so short-sighted, it meant they let lots of journalists like me go yeah. which then created this vacuum, which was then filled in by all of these people who are not journalists. Journalists, absolutely. Who, who do not know how to verify facts, who don't even care whether something is factual before they put it on there. And that's why we have this dearth of fake yeah. news now and people who are being influenced by stuff that is not verified. Yes, you know, and I, it's something that still upsets me now because I think they really, if you can trace back fake news yeah. to, to th- what happened in 2001 and 2002 yes. in this country. Yeah. But anyway, I'll get off my soapbox now. Not at all because, <laughs> you know, because that is, that is a right at this moment. It's having a profound effect Huge. on our lives because we don't know who to trust. Huge effect, huge effect. Like I said, I can't, I can't speak for the USA. I can't speak no. for other parts of Europe. I don't know, but in the UK, I genuinely believe the reason we have so much fake news now yeah. is because we lost a generation of journalists over Absolutely. twenty years ago. Absolutely. And if the editors just understood that we still need, we still need these people. Yeah. We just need a change. Where people are just going to go online and read yes. something instead of. But anyway, they didn't change, um, and that's why we have so many. So many yes. issues now. Um, so what ended up happening with me going into, so this is in my 20s. I had the first four or five years, fantastic. Some of the best of my life doing yeah. what I was meant to do, which is right. Yeah. Um, and then the final 20s, not so great at all. So I was in a relationship with a guy who I'd, be, I'd become clean. He was clean for a while, but with some addicts, it's a lifelong. I've been able to stay clean for over 20 years. He had a much harder time staying clean. So he would sometimes relapse. That would bring on his schizophrenia. So he had had drug onset schizophrenia. So he ended up becoming arrested because he was loitering somewhere and behaving very strangely. And then he was sent, he was sectioned under the Mental Health Act. which was very tough on me because, yeah, you know, I, I conducted I, for the three-year relationship, nearly two years of the relationship, he was incarcerated, and I was conducting a relationship with somebody sure. who I could only see for two hours every week. Yes, I had to get a visiting order to see. So, yeah, mm-hmm. that wasn't good. Um, and then I lost my father when I was twenty-nine, which also had a huge impact on me. Um, it, it made me leave Manchester and come and live in the northeast of England, which is where I still am now. So, yeah, yeah that had a huge effect on me losing my dad. Yeah. 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 Wonderful. Thank you for that. So we go into 30 to 40. And So that would be... 
that was a decade where I really started to understand who I am. Yeah. I think you kind of muddle through your teens and your twenties, um, and you you do a lot of fronting. There's a lot of yeah, I know who I am. Absolutely. <laughs> you don't really, you don't really have a clue who you are. I think in my thirties, I had a lot of guilt. I, wow. I'm not really sure why. I think I felt losing my dad really affected me, <laughs> and I know that he dearly wanted me to be a doctor of some sort. Right. Typical Asian dad, you know, yeah. wants his daughter to yes. be a doctor. Yeah. And at this point, I it had been several years. I'd just been doing whatever jobs came. Because all the journalists were let go, there was no way I could see to get back into that right. industry. And I didn't really know what to do, Ernie. So I was just doing whatever jobs that came about. I'd actually fallen into recruitment because I found that I was quite good at it. It was never really right. a burning ambition of mine to be a recruitment consultant, but I found that I was good at it. I made good money, so I thought I'll stick with it. And then losing my dad, it actually made me think, well, why not give it a go? Why not, why not try? to be a doctor so I decided because I was trying to work out well there's so many different kinds of doctors which one sure. do I do but because of my experiences with my ex Rick who yeah. had been incarcerated there was so much that was great about the NHS and what they were doing within mental health there's so much that was wrong as well um I really really didn't like their use of ECT on him yeah. uh I, I think that it's still there's not enough evidence still isn't enough evidence that putting electricity through somebody actually helps their brain whatsoever and um, but I was overruled and they did do that treatment on him which was one of the most horrible things I've ever had yes. to you know I'm sure far worse for him but standing by and knowing something like that was happening to him and not being able to stop it yeah so I decided that if I was going to get into medicine, I would like to be a psychologist, a clinical right. psychologist working for the NHS. So in my 30s, most of it, I spent working in psychiatric wards. So I spent a good chunk of it working in various hospitals in the northeast of England. Yes. So um, St. Nicholas Hospital, the Freeman, a number of different working in psychiatric wards. And I even worked in a prison for, for yeah. six months as well. So that was an incredible experience. Um, I was assaulted twice. So a lot of people say, wow, you know, and you still didn't want to leave. I don't know. There was something about working. And again, some people will disagree with this, but I genuinely believe prisoners and mental health patients are the most misunderstood and yeah. they are the lowest strong in society. A lot of people yeah. think of children and things like that and it's like children always get sympathy yeah you know that if, if you go to any charities the ones that may get the most donations are children's charities yeah. followed by animal charities right as soon as you have any charities for prisoners or uh, it just drops I don't, <laughs> like, I, I don't know of any i don't know of any it just drops and i think it's ridiculous there's this belief yeah. that you know i do you remember um this is um a number of years ago do you remember the case of our baby p Yes, yes. And it was a horrific case. I won't go into the details because no. it still makes my stomach want to just throw my breakfast up. And I, I'd like yeah. to keep my breakfast down yeah. today. <laughs> um, but a horrific, horrific story about this little boy who was just horribly abused by yes. his parents and the failings of the social services yeah. because they'd visited him several times but didn't pick up that this boy was being was being abused and he died in the care of his parents when really social services should have removed um, him from right. um, the, the parents and taken him to safety. And there was this huge, do you remember, a nation outpouring, a nationwide outpouring of people saying, oh my God, this is terrible and yeah. et cetera, et cetera, which is understandable, it should be. But I remember at the time thinking this boy was living in I'm not making any excuses for his parents, no, no parents. It's disgusting, you know, yeah. human beings who think they can do that to a child. Mm. But they had had the best start in life themselves. Yes, you know, yeah. they didn't have a lot of money. They didn't have jobs. They were they were pretty much falling through the net of society as well. Right. Um, not that that makes an excuse for what they did to the poor boy, of course. But I was just thinking, this boy, I think, was four or five years old when he yeah. died. If he were just a little bit older, say he was 11, 12, I'm pretty sure he'd be one of those teenage hoodlums that you see loitering yeah. Yeah. 
Um, yeah. And then if he'd ended up in a young offenders institute, there'd be like no sympathy for him. No. And I just thought, isn't that interesting? Under 10. Yeah. Oh, poor little boy. But if you just got to the age of 10, 11, 12, and he died in a youth offenders institute, yes. something like that, society at a whole, in fact, it wouldn't even make the news. It would no. be like, well, no. you know. That's right. And that's the reality. That is the reality that we get, you know, we, we feel sorry whenever we hear stories of children being abused. And we have to remember these children, the ones who don't die, they grow up. Yeah. Why do they still not get any sympathy? They don't. It's so it's something that we somehow stop the sympathy as soon yeah. as they hit their teens. It's kind of like no, we should just let them get on with it. I'd but, like to go. I'd like to go back a little bit, Mitali, because I, I found it interesting that you said that it, you you decided you wanted wanted to go into the psychiatric side of yeah NHS, yeah. and then you started to tell us about what you were doing once you qualified. It, was it easy to qualify? No, I, I, I never qualified early. Oh. So I, I did this for, this will be about four years. Right. So what I was doing was I couldn't afford to just study my degree. Right. So what I decided, because remember, this is now going to be my second bachelor's yes. degree. So the government are not going to come and help you to do a second bachelor's degree. So I had to pay my own way. So I decided to do my degree over five years instead of right. three. So do it part time. And then I would work in psychiatric wards part time as well, partly for the job, yes. sorry, for the money, really. But also because that allows me to get a bit of experience in my sure. chosen field. Yes. So I was all I was hell bent on becoming a clinical psychologist. And the first three years I really, really enjoyed. Yeah. And then what ended up happening was um, the new government came in this was the coalition government yes conservative and lib dems yeah. i'm sure you remember and all the funding again what i was talking about you know when it comes to charities even on the nhs when it comes to mental health bottom of the pile yeah you know the yeah. ones that get all the accolades the cancer centers they do yes. really well when it comes to funding whether it's charity or whether it's from the government mm -hmm. But when it comes to mental health, bottom of the pile, no one seems right. to really want to talk about it or care about it. And yeah. that's why I find it heartening now in the last few years, there's more and more talk about mental yes, health. And, there is. And especially the pandemic has really brought it to the fore. And I think, I think it's wonderful. Hopefully it won't go back into the shadows again. Right. Um, but because of all the funding cuts that were happening, this yeah. is going back to 2012, 2013, I don't remember this. I must have, I don't remember this. My, my mother tells me that she came into my room one day and I was just in a bit of a trance, just rocking back and forth. And it just, it, it put the fear of God into her. So she kind of left the room. I don't remember any of this. I think I must have had some sort of yes. break or something was going on. I don't remember. I don't have any recollection. A day or two later, she just took me to one side and just said, I was so proud of the fact that you really want to do medicine now and that you're right. honoring your dad's memory. But I'm, I'm actually asking you now to give it up. I don't think it's for you. Right. You know, I was so proud of the idea of my daughter being somebody who's able to help people with mental health issues. But I'm now worried that you're going to have mental health issues. Absolutely. Yeah. And the reason why was because of the cuts, we were actually now, the final year was one of the most horrific years of my life because we were we were letting people out of hospital that we shouldn't even be letting right. out because we needed the beds. Yes. Because yes. it was so bad. We were just discharging people. Yes. Knowing that they were going to self-harm. Yes. Knowing that they're not well and we're just letting them back out into society. But that's literally, there's nothing else we could do. No. And it was affecting my mental health. So I had to leave. When my mother told me that, I knew it, that, was, yeah. that was it for me. I was done. So I had to leave. And I think that's, does that bring us on to the final decade of your life? So where you've gone from there, from the end of the 40s to where you are now. And so what's yeah. that story? This, honestly, this last decade coming into my 40s has been 
the best yet. You right. know, what, what's that? What's that old saying, Andy? Youth is wasted on the young. Yeah. It really, really <laughs> is. It really is. So, you know, I was at rock bottom again at this stage. You know, my second chosen career yes. was now in the doldrums. I, I didn't know how to get back into it. I was back to just working any jobs that I can get just to make money. I was uh, working in call centers, which is horrible anyway. Yes. Um, I was working for a bank at a time. And I mean, the bank was fantastic. The people were fantastic, but it just wasn't what I wanted to do no. in my life. And then as luck would have it, an old friend from Manchester got in touch with me and started, He's a he has a business here. He's a, an owner of a company that does search engine optimization for various other businesses. Yes. He does very well from it. And he started telling me about this new Google algorithm update. And I'm like, why are you tell me this? I'm not technically minded. I don't really care what Google does as long as it serves me, as long as it does what I want to do. When I want to find a hairdresser, it will find me a good hairdresser. That's all I care about. Why are you talking to me about algorithms and updates? What, what's that got to do with me? And he said, no, Matali, just listen to me. Yeah. This is important. There's a new update. And it means that now website owners can't just hire writers from Eastern Europe or Southeast Asia to write these articles, which are barely legible because it didn't matter because all that mattered then was just having the right keywords. Now Google's bringing in this new update and now they're going to measure how long somebody is on the website, yes. reading the article, reading the blog post, which means now they need someone like you, they need someone who's actually a decent writer, who's not just going to stuff keywords yes. into a, a blog post, but actually write something that's entertaining and engaging. And that was the, the catalyst I needed to set up my very first business, which was a content writing business. And I started yes. writing articles and blog posts for different websites around the world. Then from that, I ended up moving into copywriting because there's more money in it. I'm sure you're yeah. aware of this, Ernie, being a great copywriter as well. Yeah. So there was more money in copywriting. So I learned copywriting and I started getting copywriting gigs. And then one of my very first copywriting um, clients uh, took a punt on me and said, hey, I'd like to, I'd like a, to write a book, but I'm not very good at all that. Yeah. Do you fancy writing a book for me? And I thought I've never written one before, but if you believe in me, then let's go for it. Yes. So I wrote my first book and that started my career as a ghostwriter. So it's just been one thing after another. It's been an absolute roller coaster. Absolutely. But I honestly have to say, hand on heart, the best decade of my life. Yes. And it's getting even better. It carries on getting even better. Absolutely. And I venture to add that it's, it feels so much better because of the traumas you've had. The down, you, so. you've heard the other side, you've seen the other side of life. Yes, and, I, and also the other thing I would say, Ernie, is I've never been a believer of fate. Right. I think fate is quite a, it's a lazy idea because if you believe in fate, then you literally just have to turn up in your life. Yes. Yeah. And then things yeah. will happen. And then yeah. you don't have the the unction to just do something, you know, exactly. you just think, well, I'll just, so I don't like the idea of, uh, idea of fate for that reason. Yes. However, looking back on my life now, it's almost as if yeah. every single thing makes sense now like why, yes. why i did it even you know my mother sometimes say well what about do you feel those years that you spent training to be a psychologist do you feel those are wasted i was like no yeah. because a lot of the psychology that i learned helped me in my copywriting Absolutely. You know, as a copywriter there's so much psychology behind the writing Absolutely. yes and it's almost like there was some sort of master plan that i had yeah. And yet I know deep down there was no master plan whatsoever. No. I was literally just living from one day to the next, just doing what my heart was telling me that was right. And that was it. I was and going to somehow, say, yeah, sorry, I was going God. to say that what I often talk about is that there, there have been many occasions in my life where I turned right instead of left. Yeah. I, I left the building. I've got two daughters I know. Because I left, when I was leaving a college, an old school friend stopped me and we got talking. And so I missed my bus back to where I was living. So instead of that, I'd been invited to an end of term party. I went to the party and one of the 
mature students who'd been in my class. We got talking. We got on really well. We got together and we had two daughters. Now, if that guy hadn't stopped me in the corridor, my daughters wouldn't have been born. I know, it's crazy. And didn't I, I think I, you, you told me a story about how your father met your mother and I think oh, he yeah. was drunk and he, and he, and he bumped he into her. her. Did he more? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> how romantic. Literally bowled over she was. <laughs> Again, if he decided to have another pint rather than go out, or if he'd gone out a pint before, yeah. I wouldn't be here. Exactly. It's incredible. Absolutely incredible. And I think people should know that, that people should know that very often how your life is, is decided by a decision that you make. Yeah. And what I've learned is that, and it's only been really the last 10, 15 years, is that I'm here now because of the decision. I mean, it's my fault. It's my fault I'm here now. I've heard you say that. I've heard you say that before. Yes, it's true. It is. It's true. You know, you have to take responsibility where you That's are it. in your life because you're only where you are today because of the steps that you took the day before and Absolutely. the day before that. Yeah. Yeah. So really, you know, I remember someone telling me a, um, a while ago, which I've always loved. I think I was having a, I was having one of those days in, you know, when you're having a bit of a whinge. Yes. Yeah. So you're having a bit of a pity party. So I must have been having a pity party a few yeah. weeks, a few years ago. This is a few years ago. And he just looked at me and said, Mitali, no one helicopters you into your life. No. He just left it at that. And I thought, yeah. that's uh, harsh, but true. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that's the point he made. He's like, you haven't been helicoptered into your life and just dumped no. into your life. You, you can't whinge. You... You are here because of things that you did in the past. And if you don't like where you are now, yeah. guess what? You've got to do something differently today. Yeah. And then you'll be in a different place tomorrow. It's It sounds overly simplified, but it actually is. Not at all, because I think you're living proof of that. So we're coming towards the end, Mitali. Thank you very much for being so open. And I think that's going to be a real lesson for the people who come on after is to be open, to get the stories out of you. It's, and so... It's, I would say be honest with stories as well. Like, yeah. be honest. I've only really, I would say, in the last year or so, started to speak openly yes. about the fact that I, I, I was having yeah. addiction, that I was homeless, yeah. you know, that I've had mental health yeah. issues myself. I've only been recently... and. Now I wish I can go back to my former self. I wish I can get like a DeLorean and yeah. go back in time. <laughs> try, yeah, speak to that young girl who was trying to front it out, trying to be perfect. Yeah. And just say, people like you more when you show that you're broken. You know, you don't this have to it. try so hard to be no. perfect because people actually don't like that. They really don't like that. And I think we both know through 4N, which we're a member of, yeah. is that I've seen the people who've done who perhaps been the most successful of the people who've been able in their 18-minute or 20-minute foresight, been able to tell the crap that's happened to them. Yeah, absolutely. Because it's become more powerful than all the successes that they've had. Yeah. So, you know, that is my, my goal is to get more people like yourself to open up and to tell the bad side, the crap side. Because it means you've survived. Absolutely. Absolutely. Not only with you, not only have you survived, you're thriving. <laughs> I am. I am. I can't, I have to pinch myself because I remember this this time last year. Yeah, it was around this time last year. I had this harebrained idea. Well, I've now written seven books as a ghostwriter. Why yeah. don't I teach people to write their own books? So that means I can help more people. Yes. And I remember loads of people saying, you're crazy. You're one of the few people who don't even need to pivot in this part. I hate that word, by the way. It was right. overused in 2020. But um, I was one of the few people that didn't even need to pivot. Because guess yeah. what? As you, you'll notice as well as a copywriter, Ernie, our business went through the roof last year because more Absolutely. people were indoors, which yeah. means they were consuming more content. So we were one of the few people who did well out of the pandemic. Yes. So there's literally no reason for me to move out of what I was doing and start no. teaching it. So everyone thought I was crazy. They were like, what are you doing? You're, you're making even more money now. Just stick right. to what you're doing. 
but there was just something inside of me that said, no, I really, really want to do this. I really yeah. want to teach people to write their own books. And then I, I, I wrote my own book as well, which again was nerve wracking. Um, it's interesting, the journey from being a ghostwriter to an author, yes. you know. Um, Again, I'm, 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 I don't want to keep it too long because I want people to really see all of it. But yeah, but you're bringing up so many, so many ideas in me, in that you speak so well into the camera, you speak so well to a live audience that I could always almost see you being a storyteller. And yeah. you know, I when my venue closed last year. So there was no more storytelling. I thought that was the end of my career, my end of my venture. But then I found that there was the worldwide virtual storytelling guild in America, which meant that instead of me telling my stories to 25 people in Leamington, I was telling them to all over the world. And a lot of those storytellers were coming from the Asian continent. So I think that's something that you could maybe delve into as well, is to, to look at storytelling. I'd love to, definitely. Um, we must leave it at that, I think, Mitali. Thank you very, very much. It's been spectacular. How do people get in touch with you? Uh, well, the best way is just to get to my website. So my book is called The Freedom Master Plan. You can just see it over my shoulder yeah. over there. Um, and the website is called thefreedommasterplan.com. So if you just go over there, you find all the different ways to contact me, whether it's via email or social yes. media. Uh, and you can also download um, a free sample chapter from the book. Right. So if you like, if you like it, then you can go and get it on Amazon. Great. Don't go away straight after Mitali. We'll have a couple of minutes chat. But thank you very much for all that you've told us, for being so open and just zoom away into the future. Thank you, Mitali. Take care, everyone. And thank you. the next thank you so No Story Stagnates will be later in the week. Take care. Thank you for listening to No Story Stagnates with me, Ernie Boxall. No Story Stagnates is the unique way to boost your visibility by allowing the audience to know your story, your brand and your authority. By telling your story well, you can make the maximum impact with more people without anxiety or dread. If you've ever thought about telling your story and telling it well, go to No Story Stagnates at Ernie at ErnieSaid.info. That's E R N I E at E R N I E S A I D dot info. Don't forget to like, comment, and subscribe if you've enjoyed what you've heard on the video. Take care.